is Psalm 40 from the ESV. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who, do not, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare to you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book it is written of me. I will delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Thank you so much for those who have gathered here to praise your name and worship you. We thank you for those who are watching online today. And God, I pray that you will remove the distractions that are around them and allow them to be able to focus in because we know we're a needy people and that we need your word to guide and direct us, especially during the times that we live in today when there's so much unrest and so much pain and hurt and confusion, God. And I pray that you will guide and direct us to anchor our lives completely and totally upon your word and upon the name of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Imagine this scenario for a second. Imagine that those of you who are married, that when you first were married, that your spouse ordered on Amazon, well, for some of you, Amazon wasn't around back then, but ordered on Amazon, pretend, um, five or six boxes of greeting cards, blank inside, and then over time, they begin to go through these things and write inside, I love you, and sign their name to it, and they, over time, accomplished pretty much, you know, hundreds of cards with that in it. And then every Valentine's Day, every birthday, they just went into their drawer, pulled out the box, got a card out, and said, here you go, honey, happy birthday, and gave you that card. Now, some of you would be like, that's an improvement because I don't get anything at all, all right? 
you got other issues. We'll talk about that some other time, all right? Um, but imagine that, because maybe at first, maybe the first year, you would not really get the idea that this was just a repetitive thing, and you're like, oh, sweet, I guess, you know, he or she doesn't have a lot to say, but that says so much. Those three words are incredible, you know, I love you. Can you really add much to that? But after a few years, at least, you would begin to question, does this person have anything of depth to say about me? Do they understand me? Do they see me? For who I am? Do they understand the things I do? Do they like spending time with me? Do, they, do I mean anything to them? Because the words, I love you, are incredibly powerful, and they're true, but at the same time, you realize that you want a fresh expression of love. There's not too much to ask for. The same is true in our relationship with God. That God likes to be worshipped with a fresh expression with a fresh, heartfelt response to who he is, the great things he's done. But so many times, it's just signing it and turning it over to him. God, here's your praise, here's your worship. And our prayers tend to be rote and routine and the same words again and again. And there's really no heartfelt expression of our gratitude and devotion to him. And don't you think over time, God wonders... You know, I've done so much for you as my child. I, I've given you so much. And the most important thing I've given you is myself to you. Why don't you respond any differently? Well, in today's text, David says that he wrote a new song to God. Because God had given him something that he had never had or experienced of God before. And David's response is one of worship. He responds with what he says is a new song. Now, don't let that hold you up. Some of you are like, oh, you know, I don't even like singing, more or less writing songs. That's not my thing. Well, think of it like a prayer, an expression to God, just pouring out your heart in worship to God. He put a new song in my mouth. Why? Because God had done something unique for David, specific to him, and he was able to see God in a whole different light than he had before, a different side of God's character, a different angle on his holiness, his deliverance, and he expressed that. And so my challenge today as we look through Psalm 40 is to have David's posture and respond with something fresh and new to God. Psalm 40, as, as Sean was re reading this, you may have noticed what a lot of Bible commentators had noticed if you are paying good attention there, that Verses 1 through 10 seem to be David remembering something that happened and God delivered him and he's, and he's praising God for that. He's, he's affirming that, God, you did this incredible thing for me. But then in verses 11 through 17, the tone shifts and he's in crisis again. And so that has led some to believe that these were actually two psalms from the beginning and somewhere over time they were put together as one. Some would argue that's not the case. This is all one song, psalm. But the truth of the matter is, we won't get to the bottom of that today, but the truth of the matter is that regardless of God's deliverance at the moment, troubles always seem to return, don't they? David, at one time, he's saying, God, I remember your faithfulness, I remember your goodness, here's the incredible things you have done, but all of us, like David, then we turn around and we find ourselves right back into another crisis, another situation in the near future. That's just called life. That's just going to happen over time. Why does that happen? 
Well, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but let me give you the reasons, five reasons at least from Scripture, why bad things happen to those who follow Jesus and those who love him and are trying to do what he wants us to do. First, the world. The, 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 the scripture says the world presents to us challenges. Why? Because it's not functioning the way that God originally intended it in the garden. The world doesn't operate as if God is running the world exactly the way that he would have run it in the beginning. Now, God is sovereign. God works all things to his good. We talked about that weeks ago. But yet, we still see that sin entered into the world. And through God's providence, he dictated that. He ordained that. But that tension that exists there, we talked about that two weeks ago. So the world, and as a result of that, we live in these broken bodies. We have to deal with this thing called the flesh, or in the, in the Greek, it's called sarks. It, it's our propensity towards sin, our humanness, our leanings towards selfishness, our leanings toward we want things the way we want them, we want our comfort, and so we, we, we deal with the flesh. So the world, the flesh, and then also Scripture talks about the devil who is real and the devil who brings trials and adversities into our lives. Now, under the sovereign hand of God and his permission, but nevertheless, the devil brings these into our lives. And then there's also God's discipline. Hebrews talks about that. Just like parents, if your child does something that's wrong, you correct them. You discipline them to make them a better child. And God does the same thing. Hebrews says that he disciplines those who he loves. So bad things can come into your life as a result of God's discipline. And then the final one is God's refining, God's pruning of us, that he sees our life and he, the goal is for us to be like Jesus Christ, more and more like him. And so he prunes, he cuts things off that need to come off of our life. He refines us, as the scripture says. So these things happen in the fallen world that we live in. And so today we're going to see in verses 1 through 10, and we're really only going to get through about verse 3, David remembers needing God's rescue because of the situation that he's in. He thinks about the situation, and he was desperate for God's rescue. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. So he's recalling this horrifying situation that he was in, where he was floundering around hopelessly, helplessly, waiting for God to come through. And it says, he waited patiently for the, for the Lord. In the Hebrew, unlike us, if we want to emphasize a word, what do we do? We bold or underline it or put it in all caps if we want a word to really have power. Well, in the Hebrew language, the language of the, of the Psalms, the emphasis was made through repeating a word. So literally, and some of you, if you have a modern translation there you're looking at, it may say this. It says, I waited and waited upon the Lord. And in fact, the message paraphrase even adds another one. I waited and I waited and I waited upon the Lord. And so you see David is in the situation. He's, it's urgent. He's sinking. He's desperate. But all he can do at this point is to wait for the Lord's deliverance. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. There's nothing he could do about the situation. This was completely and totally going to be God rescuing him because he couldn't get out. I told this story several years ago, but as I was doing sermon prep, it just reminded me because David's situation, he uses this term pit. He's just des desperate. 
and my brother, back when we lived in Chattanooga, Chattanooga, if you've been to Chattanooga or lived in Chattanooga, there's like thousands, literally thousands of caves. And my brother was an avid spelunker. He loved to go caving, and, and that's what he, he loved to do on the weekends and go out with some guys usually. And he found out about this one cave that was actually, it was down in this deep pit, about a 70-foot pit. And then you, once you got down in there, he was pretty certain that this would connect to some of the caves that he had explored. And so he had this great plan in place where he was going to go into that pit and then search for the, uh, the caves that were, were opening into that. Well, he and another guy, his name was Troy Packard, went to college with him. He and Troy went uh, to way out dirt roads, way out into the country, and finally found, before GPS, and found this pit. And my brother got his repelling gear out, Troy ran it way to the top, and my brother repelled down into the pit. Well, when he got about 12 to 15 feet from the bottom of the pit, he realized that he did not have enough rope to get into the pit. And so it was too far to just jump down. There's a rocky bottom there. So he decided to unhook his harness, and that would give him some extra rope that he could make it a more manageable drop off into the hole. And so he did that without thinking of the fact that once he dropped into the hole, the rope would be at least 10 feet up in the air, and he would not be able to get back to the rope. And so he landed and quickly realized what a grave mistake that he made in this situation. Well, fortunately, Troy was still at the top, and as I told you, way out in the middle of nowhere. And so he yells up at Troy, and he says, Troy, you know, go and buy some rope. Get some rope so I can get out of here. Well, Troy said, I don't have the keys to the car. My brother looks down, keys are in his pocket. He begins to throw his keys up, trying to get them up 70 feet, obviously, you could not make it near that far. He was stuck in the pit. Well, Troy begins to walk down the dirt road, eventually gets picked up by some strangers. And my brother's in there. He's tell, told me the story that he's in there, and he's trying to scale the wall, climb the wall. He's trying to get out and just of no avail. I mean, he, he just is literally stuck down. It's getting night. He's getting nervous. Finally, he sees a repelling team coming down the wall, all dressed in their gear, and I've told the story before, a news camera and a news team there that was actually came to report on the story and made the Chattanooga Times. And, and, and it was just, just a hilarious uh, ending to the story, but it wasn't hilarious for him being stuck down in there until nightfall. And I, I, you know, I think about that situation because literally there was nothing at all he could do to get out on his own. He had no ability whatsoever. He was literally, right, at the end of his rope, and he could not do anything about the situation. And that's exactly the situation that David is finding himself in, except his was a lot more real than, than my brother Mark's situation here. He was stuck in this pit. Was this pit something physical? Was it something that um, he was dealing with an enemy? Was it a sin? We don't know for sure, but it's interesting as you look in this passage that David doesn't mention anything about an enemy as he often does. He doesn't uh, say he was sick and he was struggling. He doesn't say that he was receiving insults from his enemies. He doesn't confess any sins in the situation. So I, I look at this almost like it was a, a mental, it was an emotional distress that he was in, what we would call probably a, a depression that he was in, that he was literally, he was stuck and he didn't know what to do about it. He was in this pit. He had all this despair and all this agony and he didn't have the strength to get himself out of it. And we know David was an incredible man, a man of war, a man of strength, a man of power, yet he knew that it was a total God job 
if he could get out of this one. Because, you know, sometimes if it is physical or if it's something that's uh, more something that material that we can will ourselves through or work ourselves through, but when we find ourselves in a situation possibly that David's in where he's literally just emotionally and mentally just at the bottom, there was nothing he could do about it. He needed God's intervention. He needed God to come through. And what we do see is that he's, he's persevering in prayer, isn't he? Because he's saying, I'm waiting on the Lord. He's at least directing his, his thoughts and his focus to the Lord because he knows that it has to be in humble submission to God and his timing and his sovereignty that he's going to get out of this situation. But what a, what a, what a time for him to be in. And maybe you have experienced that or maybe you are experiencing that. Just with everything going on in the world right now, a lot of people are struggling so much with emotions with anxiety, with fear. They're struggling in their marriages because it's, it's playing out in your anger or it's in your parenting. And you're in this, in this period of darkness and maybe God seems extremely silent at this moment. And what I love about David, he doesn't try to sugarcoat his condition as we often do. He doesn't apologize because he's feeling this way. He just lays it out there. He says, I'm waiting and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting on you, God, to get me out of here. Because I've tried, and I can't do it on my own. I'm stuck. I'm in despair. I'm in ang agony here. Did you know that one in five people experience depression? And there appears to be this epidemic of depression, anxiety, panic attacks, even among Christians, both young and old. In fact, a book that I was reading called Even Christians Get Depressed Too, John Lockley writes this, he says, Being depressed is bad enough in itself, but being a depressed Christian is worse. And being a depressed Christian in a church full of people who do not, do not understand depression is like a little taste of hell. Why? Because we feel like nobody understands. And oftentimes we want to say things that are well-meaning but really don't help at all. In fact, David Murray put together an excellent list of what oftentimes Christians say to other Christians who are in this dark season of the soul. Like, pull yourself together. And they say things like, don't get so emotional. But you got nothing to be sad about. You're, look at your life. What, what do you have to be sad about? You'll get over this really soon. Just, you'll, you'll get over it. Did you know it's a sin to be depressed? People will say to you, Smile, it can't be that bad. At least it's nothing serious, right? You should confess your sins. That'll take care of it. Or you're still on medication? Still? You're still taking medication? Those are the kind of things sometimes Christians in good meaning say to others who find themselves in that pit of despair and hopelessness in that dark season of, the life, of, your, of life. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have family who have experienced this. And you know that there's just nothing you can will or pull yourself out of this situation on your own. In fact, 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, and if you've been around church in any way, shape, or form for a few years, you've heard the name Charles Spurgeon, even though he lived years ago. I mean, this guy had a massive impact on the kingdom of God. He lived in England, and during the time of his, his life, he pastored the largest independent congregation of the world. I mean, this guy was the, literally the first megachurch pastor. 
his services drew the Prime Minister, the Royal Family of England, members of Parliament, and even President James Garfield went and heard him preach. He started a college. He started two orphanages. His sermons were being translated into 20 languages during his lifetime. So people would take his, his sermons. They were so popular, and he was so powerful, and they would go and they would spread the news on his sermons. This guy was an amazing pastor, amazing preacher, amazing guy, wrote many books and commentaries. But you know he struggled with a lifelong problem with anxiety. A struggle, he struggled lifetime with anxiety and depression. In fact, so much of what he has written, he speaks to this and talks about this. But he believed that God had a good purpose in his suffering. He believed that God made him a more compassionate pastor through what he dealt with. And in fact, he said this, and this is pretty amazing. He said, how can we have a life of ease when Jesus had so much pain? Do you expect to be crowned with gold where he was crowned with thorns? And so his perspective on this, he understood, you know, God, this is where you put me. And I'm not going to let this stop me from doing incredible things for your kingdom. I'm not going to allow this to hold me back and become an excuse for furthering your kingdom and your name, even as I struggle with it. And so we all have seasons of this, some longer than others. And it doesn't say how long David was in this season. It could be days, could have been weeks, during, could have been months. But look what he says. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord. And it got me thinking, what does it mean to wait impatiently for the Lord during your struggle and during your trial? Think about it. Think about trials that you've been through or something that you're dealing with right now. What does it mean to wait patiently for God in that? And what does it mean to wait impatiently for God in that? As I was thinking through my own life, I think having preconceived ideas of what God's deliverance should look like from this situation. Like, I think I know what God should do. Or I think I know how long I should be here and when God should rescue me from this situation. Another thing that I think we wait impatiently is we're unwilling to allow the body of Christ to be the body of Christ. We are unwilling to allow the church to speak into our lives because we're, we've got too much pride, honestly, and we don't want anyone to know what we're dealing with and going through. And so we have no true allies, nobody in our foxhole with us, to help us during these situations. That's waiting impatiently. Another thing, you find yourself consistently demanding to know why you're in this situation. Why, God? Why am I in this? And yeah, I think it's important as we face things that we walk through and say, you know, is there a known sin in my life? Am I embracing sin and saying, God, this is just what I want, and sorry, this is the way it's going to be? And God brings us to our knees in our suffering, and we confess that and turn from that. But there are times when we look at that and we confess it, but we still ask why. You know, okay, God, okay, I've confessed. Why am I not moving out of this trial? And so we begin to ask why. What what else, God? What's going on here? And we constantly dwell on trying to know the future. And then a couple of the worst things that we could do is to be impatient. We stop seeking God's face and refuse to hold fast to his promises. And we oftentimes then turn to idols turn to other things to fill that hole, that void in our lives, thinking those things are going to help. But what God wants us to do is what David did. We wait patiently upon the Lord. We look to him. We're desperate. We crowd to him. We hold on to his promises. We hold on to his truth. 
and we don't base it on how we feel about his truth. We just believe it. We trust it. We anchor our lives into it. And we know that patience is part of God's strategy for maturing us. I was going to have uh, somebody come up. Jerry was going to come up and do push-ups for him, but we'll hold off on that because it might be a long illustration, as strong as this guy is. But I, I, I was going to have him do as many push-ups as he, as he could. And we'd probably be waiting about 30 minutes, probably about for that to be done. And then I was going to say, okay, stand up. Now get back, back, back down and do a push-up. And what would happen? Unless he's in, in stellar push-up shape, he'd, he'd put out a, two, a couple, two or three, and then what happened? He'd be fatigued because of everything he just went through that he would find himself fatigued and unable to do what he was currently trying to do. And I think sometimes we look at our situation from the bottom of the pit like that. We think, my faith is horribly weak. Look how weak I am. Look how, how inadequate I am. Look how I'm, I'm crying. I'm, I'm literally, I'm distraught emotionally. I'm, I'm so weak, God. Yet, the very thing that exercise does, right? The reason why you can work yourself to fatigue and then maybe push out a few more past that and find yourself in that situation where your, your hands are shaking is because you know that this workout and this, this, these repetitions Repetition, it's going to produce in you stronger muscles. It's going to make you more durable and able to do more and, and last longer. And the same thing is true in our adversity when we're in the bottom of the pit. So many times we think that we are too weak. But what does Scripture tell us? When we're weak, then we find God to be strong. When we're humble, we're not depending upon our own strength. We're not making our plans. We're not trying to throw those keys out of the pit. But we're saying, God, I, I can't. I, I, you know, I'm helpless here. All I can do is look up. I look to you, and I say, I can't do it. And God, I hold to your promises that say that you'll never leave me. You'll never forsake me. And I, I feel very alone right now, God. I don't feel like you're here with me. But you said you're with me. And so I'm going to believe that even though I don't feel it. I'm going to trust it even though I don't feel it. You see, that's what God's working in us. Patience. He's, he's making us patient. He's making us more like Jesus Christ in these situations. And so the pressure that you're under right now, are you looking to God or are you trying to figure it out for yourself? Well, when the time was right, David writes that God responded. And think about your own life. Think about the times, even if you're in the worst season of your life right now, think back. There's been times when you've been in bad seasons before when God responded. David remembers that. And he says that he inclined to me and he heard my cry. The imagery here is God bending down to David and removing any perceived distance between the two of them. That God, the figurative language is he bends down and any distance that David thought there was there, that's removed. And he knows God is close. And verse 2, and he sets my feet upon the rock, David said. He set my feet upon the rock and he makes my steps secure. So God's deliverance, it radically changes David's situation from muck and mire and mud to rock where he would not slip off and fall back in. And so here's key, where we started. What does David do? David responds in worship to God. 
Because it's all about God, right? It's all about Jesus. And so if we just say, glad that's over and life is back as normal and usual, what have we learned from this? But David, he responds. He says, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. He's got this new joy, this new hope, and he's praising God with it. He's praising God for his deliverance. And not only that, look at the next verse. He says, or the second part of the verse, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Many people are going to see that God delivered me. They looked and they saw the situation that I was in, how desperate, and they probably mocked God, and they said, where is this God? Why is he in that situation? Obviously, his God is not that big. But he said, God delivered me. He pulled me out, and he put me upon rock. He made my feet be secure. And he says, I'm going to praise God. I'm going to give God glory for that situation. And many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. The majority of God's mighty works are not only to help out us, but it's to demonstrate to unbelievers what he, that he is the one and only God and causes them to fear him. So the situation you're in right now, if you're a Jesus follower, if you're a Christian, the situation you're in right now, God wants to use that for his glory. Those who you work with, instead of sitting around and complaining all the time about how hard life is, how you hate the world, how you hate things right now, how depressed that the, the, the media is and, and all the problems you see on Facebook and all these things we want to sit around and talk to our coworkers about. And maybe your coworker is an unbeliever or maybe claims to be a Christian but really isn't a believer and they're sitting there scratching your, their head and said, okay, where does your Jesus fit into this picture? Because you talk about Jesus being big and everybody around, you know, churches here, every corner, and people are like, we follow Jesus, but what difference is that making in your life? Because it doesn't look like you're really leaning into him during the struggle that you're in. And so, give Jesus the praise. Unbelievers need hope. The lost need hope. Those who are unchurched need hope. And many will see, David says, they will see and they'll fear and they'll put their trust in the Lord. So very simply, this is a cycle of life. And just like I said, at the end of the passage, it comes back around, it's another crisis, the same thing is true for us. So you're in this pit, you're in despair, you seek God, you cry out to God, and you wait. And you wait sometimes, and you wait sometimes. And it's horrible, and it feels awful, but you're putting your faith and trust in God. And then God, at the right time, at his timetable, he reaches down, he lifts you up, he stabilizes your life, he puts you on in a situation where you're secure and your feet are firm, and what do you do? You've learned more about God. Your, your knowledge of God has grown. God is so much bigger now than he was before because of what he did and what you experienced. And so what do you do? You praise him. You glorify Him. You speak of the wonderful things He's done. As the end of the passage talked about, that, verse 9 and 10, how you're going to talk about it to the congregation, to the people, to the church, to the insiders, those who are outside. You're going to share, God is great. He delivers. And then what do you do? You know that another crisis is right around the corner. Unfortunately, sometimes you just feel like, wow, I just got past that one. But you're not in despair like you were before because you've learned God is the God of deliverance. 
God I can hope and put my trust in because he did it before and he'll do it again. And I'm going to wait. And if he calls me to, I'll wait and wait. But he's a good God. He loves me. He's for me, not against me. So how do you respond to today's message? I told the staff, I think, or Mitch, I told him, I said I'm going to begin for at least a while to kind of have an application for your head, your heart, and your hands. Because I think sometimes we compartmentalize things by saying, you know what, I learned more today. I learned something. Oh, I took some notes, and some of you are really wired that way. I've learned a lot about God today, and, and I'm going to jot that down. That's good. It's in my Bible, or it's in my notes. Good stuff. I feel like I've accomplished something today because I've learned something. Then some of you are more like heart people. You're more emotional. And, and so you're sitting here, and you're going, wow, God, you really are good, and, and I should lean into your word and trust you. And then some of you are doers. Like You're like, well, God can be trusted. You know? I need to get busy doing stuff. Like that person at work and that one at work. And that man, that spoke to me. I'm all about, let's, let's let them know. Let's get, get going and get, get the truth out there. But the truth is we, we don't need to focus in on just one of those areas. All those areas need to be applied so that we can be who God wants us to be. So real quickly, three things. Your head, know and believe that you deserved God's wrath but instead you were rescued. God is for you because of Jesus. You need to know that. Like That needs to be something that's so much a part of you that you don't question the fact that God is for you, not against you. You may be tempted to feel otherwise, but you know that's not the truth because of what Jesus did on the cross for you proved that God is for you. And when you put your faith in, in Jesus, he never leaves you, never forsakes you. God is for you, not against you. Know that in your head. Then your heart. I would encourage you to start every day with a prayer of gratitude. You see, you may say, well, I start my day with prayer. But many times our prayers are, God, fix this, do this, help me with this, uh, make this happen. And it's all about our agendas. Make your prayer start out with, God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for my salvation. There's so many things that we can be thankful for. Begin to make that the majority of your prayer. God, thank you for the cross. And then our hands. Very simply, where we started, write a new song. And you're thinking, well, I can't write a song can't make anything rhyme. A journal of prayer. Write a prayer. Write it out. Literally. I mean, this is not like something that preachers say to do, and then you walk out, well, that's a good thought. I'm doing it in my head or my heart. Like, literally, get a notebook, get a journal. Maybe you have one. Hope you do. And open it up and write out to God where you find yourself. Maybe it is that you're on the, on the other side of the pit. God, thank you for your deliverance. Maybe you're in the pit right now. God, I know you're there. I know you're for me, but it sure doesn't feel like it right now. I feel like I have very little hope. I feel like you're so far away. But God, I'm anchoring myself in your word because your word is true. And you write out the promises of God from Scripture, and you memorize those promises of God. So there's you something to do, you doers. Write it out. Believe it. 
Express it. Do it. And then for today, I'd like to add one other thing to this. Because oftentimes anxiety and depression are very much tied into the physical side of us. We can't compartmentalize our, our bodies and our, and our spirit, our soul. It, it, these work together. And so your health, plain and simple, your health. Some of you have allowed this quarantine and this time of readjustment and just things not going the way they used to, to be an excuse just to kind of let your health fall apart and not be doing the exercise and the routines that you need to do in order to make yourself feel good physically, get those endorphins going in, in your mind and your brain. Some of you just need to get into a simple exercise routine and schedule. And you'll be amazed how that will make you feel better and it'll give you a little bit of light and it'll allow you to open up your Bible and have more energy to seek God and not let your mind be drifting off and, and drifting to sleep. And so make these things a part of your life. Your head, your heart, your hands, and your health. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the example of David, such a, a strong, incredibly brave warrior, but a man who weeped and cried in his situation, a man who hurt and felt pain and depression and all the things that we feel. And God, I pray that you'll help us not to be so prideful that we fail to reach out to other people, that we uh, are unwilling to admit to you the reality of our situation. And God, I pray that each person in here will truly take out pen and paper or a computer and, and, and type out a prayer, a song to you in response to where they're at, what they're going through, and the greatness of your name, and the greatness of their, of their salvation, which was provided to us through the horrible death of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he wore the crown so that we can wear the crown as well, that we can take up our cross as he took up his cross, and we follow you regardless of what situation we find ourselves in today. In Jesus' name we pray.